From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs will launch a facilities modernization and realignment plan. The agency's holding 50 listening sessions with veterans all over the country about the facilities they use and what they need. GovExec reports VA Secretary Dennis McDonough will deliver that plan to Congress early in 2022. The Office of Management and Budgets restarting the government's performance improvement measurement and data collection. OMB Associate Director Pam Coleman writes agencies were, quote, clear and unanimous in wanting the administration to restart the framework. FedScoop reports performance.gov will get quarterly updates again whether agencies hit performance targets or not. The Joint Artificial Intelligence Center's cloud environment for data access is ready for use. Service members can use the Joint Common Foundation to access DOD data for AI. Federal News Network reports Jake hopes the foundation will allow troops to build AI applications on their own. The National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence warns if current trends continue, China could surpass the United States as the world's leader in AI in the next decade. The commission has new recommendations for Congress for defending the country with technology and promoting U.S. innovation in artificial intelligence. Katrina McFarland is director at Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC, former assistant secretary of defense for acquisition. She's a member of the National Security Commission on AI. Katrina, welcome. It's good to see you again. You start this report by writing that there are two convictions that you and your colleagues have. One is the rapidly improving ability of computer systems to solve problems is world altering. And the other is that AI is expanding the window of vulnerability for the United States. How do those two convictions inform the work that you and your team did? So when we did an assessment, we took a full year to assess at all levels of classification, the status of artificial intelligence in the United States. When we took that into account, we could see with a lot of interviews where we were, how we were positioned, and ultimately determined, as you mentioned, that we are not prepared nor resourced for the artificial intelligence technology competition. When you say that we're not resourced for that competition, what resources do we need? Is it just money? Is it also people? Is it policy or all of the above or something else? It's all of the above. The way we structured the commission's report, which is a heavy lift, I recommend people read the first 16 pages of a summary, is along the lines of all facets of how to prepare for this competition. It's talent, it's hardware, it's leadership, and it's protecting innovation. So it's very broad. We have a link to that report at govmatters.tv slash resources. And you break this into two primary areas of recommendations, Katrina. One is defending America in the AI era, long list of recommendations there. And part two is winning the technology competition, number of recommendations there too. Are there some of these that are more important or that are the base for succeeding with the other recommendations, things that we should do first? Well, it's interesting you're saying that because the commissioners had a lengthy discussion about the 16 chapters of this report because they're so integrated. 
So we can't really say we prioritize one recommendation over another. But as you mentioned, what would we start with first? I would say you have to start with people. The nation has been um, very hesitant, I would call it, to engage at all the levels that we need to engage in with artificial intelligence. In fact, when we talk at the very beginning of the report, we mention the fact that artificial intelligence has had a campaign by state actors using our freedom of the press to influence how we think about artificial intelligence. It's one of the ways that we've been impacted, voting, our financial system, all the pillars of our government have been influenced by offshore use of artificial intelligence. And so I would start with people, get them to understand what artificial is, that our nation and our values can be protected through the use and application of the AI um, uh, skill and uh, technology space. And then I would move into small uh, confidence building uh, efforts like sustainment, changing business systems, at the same time introducing pilots. So I would talk about a progression of its use. Who needs to do what, Katrina, in, 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 able, in order to uh, fulfill the vision that you and your colleagues have for these recommendations? Where's the, where's so the onus on the, most of, this, of these recommendations? It's on all of us. As a nation, this technology space is everywhere. It has been phenomenally impacting to good. If you take a look at the medical field, facial recognition to detect cancer early in patients has revolved and evolved into fantastic advances. And yet, because it's got dual purposes and can definitely impact people in multiple domains, we as a nation have to use our skills and our biases to protect our freedoms. And that means all of us. And so one of the recommendations, in fact, is to host at the vice president level a technology competition council that's uh, chaired by the vice president and uh, staffed by the cabinet members because it's all domains. We have about a minute left. And um, before you go, I want to uh, learn more about an event that you are participating in this coming Friday. Um, it benefits the Defense Intelligence Memorial Foundation. What is that foundation and what's the event that you're doing to benefit it, Katrina? Well, thank you, Francis. So what we're having, and you can take this artificial intelligence conversation further at this event, is the Defense Intelligence Memorial Foundation uh, serves the fallen um, family members of operatives. Uh, and what we're hosting is a tech talk on artificial intelligence that introduces business-to-business uh, -business opportunities with sponsors like Amazon, Maxar, Blues Allen, and also with coaches from prior very senior level government officials to improve uh, their ability to enter into this most critical competitive uh, artificial intelligence area and serve our fallen um, members' families. So it's uh, an opportunity to give and give. Katrina, thanks very much for coming on to talk about both the event and the recommendations that you and your colleagues make on AI. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Francis. You can find a link to the event Katrina told you about at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, happy employees at the Thrift Savings Plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why that's good news for you, even if you don't work there. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Participation in the Thrift Savings Plan is up again this month. TSP participation among active duty uniform service members is up to 77.1%. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. That's a big number, Kim. That came from, I mean, pretty much zero when you started the blended retirement uh, a while back. What is the, uh, what's the reason behind that increase, do you think? Well, the, the reason is auto-enrollment, and what's even more exciting about the 77% is that 68% of those people are contributing 5%, so they're getting the full match. And again, that's just the benefit of auto-enrollment and people not making a change to diminish that contribution. What, what kind of um, kick-out rate, I guess, is the best name I can think of for it? How many people are actively saying, I don't want to enroll or I don't want to enroll at 5%? Are, are you getting Less much of that? Less than 1% of, and I can't segregate that to just uniform services, but across our population, less than 1% opt out. That's, um, that was the intent of the legislation originally, wasn't it? To get people to get in, stay in, and get that match, correct? Exactly, because if you contribute 5%, your employer contributes 5%, you get that 10% um, in, and you just, you know, we're investing people in the age-appropriate life cycle funds. So for a lot of the uniform services, the younger members, that's L2060 or 2065. Um, and if they just put in 10% and let it keep accruing, that's what um, the benefit of compounding interest, and it will serve them well. Do you have a participation rate goal for the uniform services or a timeline attached to that, Kim? We really don't. I mean, we would like, obviously, the higher the better, simply because it's a benefit to the participant and it is um, for blended retirement, an integral part of their retirement. Um, but it's not that we have a specific target that we're hoping to hit. Um, the Thrift Board got some good news at the board meeting this month about the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey numbers for the TSP. Brag a little bit about how happy people are to work at the TSP, Kim. We were really, really, really happy, I have to say. 77% um, of our employees um, said that they were engaged. 72% uh, said that they were satisfied. And what I found most um, heartening is 95% of our employees thought that we would, the leadership would be able to handle um, future emergencies because I think we did a very good job handling the one we're in. Um, and then 97% said that we communicated well. Uh, and so I think that um, it validated a lot of what we've done over the past year um, in terms of a drumbeat of communication and outreach and deploying tools as we could to improve uh, communication from people who are all working from home. One of the most important numbers that the HR experts tell me about the FEVs results is the participation rate. You had a 70, I don't have the number in front of me, 70 some particip uh, percent participation rate. Yep, 74%. It was up just shy of 2% from the previous year. And again, um, this, you know, the FEVs survey is usually done in the spring. This one, because the spring last year was, of course, chaos. Um, OPM did it in the fall. It was September through November. Um, 
And so we were deep into six months of the pandemic, six months of everyone working from home. And again, I think it was a very good reflection of people, people's interest in giving feedback and um, again, a validation of the actions we've taken that we're gonna just have to continue to reinforce. The board got uh, a lot of information about the enterprise risk profile of the TSP. What did they learn and what do participants take away from what the board learned about the enterprise risk profile of the TSP, Kim? So we've been doing this for several years now and we we rank our risks. We've got a, you know, a number of categories that we rank our risks. We are at 13 enterprise risks. They're ranked at medium, high, and high. We don't have any high risks at the moment um, because the high risks we've mitigated and we've moved sort of down the chain. Uh, so our top two risks, which I don't think will come as a shock to anybody, is information security and insider threat management. And so what we do is we develop a risk treatment plan on how to mitigate those risks. Um, I don't think information security would ever go away for obvious reasons. Um, and it's just something that as as things change, we continue to evolve with them. And what was interesting about this year is we're in the middle of developing, well, sort of at the tail end, not in the middle, of developing our strategic plan for FY22 through 26. And for the first time, we sort of integrated our enterprise risk analysis into our strategic plan analysis so that we were making sure we were um, focused on both. What is the timeline for that strategic plan for 22 to 26, Kim? That sounds pretty interesting. It'll be released later this summer, I believe. And what all does that encompass? The entire operations of the TSP? Is that pretty yes. much the thing for the TSP? It is the thing for the TSP, yes. Sorry. To... Um, go ahead. Pardon? No, go ahead. It, it, it um, outlines what we're going to do uh, in terms of... So, it outlines our goals and we're very much trying to work in an um, outcome oriented uh, mind frame, which is different than just saying we want X percent, right? We don't, we're trying to get away from just measuring something and saying the outcome we're looking and, and pushing toward an outcome. And so the outcomes are things like the participants are confident in their retirement um, savings. Participants have the tools that will allow them to get there is sort of the measure for that outcome. And that's what we're working through right now. Kim Weaver, thanks very much as always. Thank you, Francis. Up next, agencies sending out big quantities of cash seamlessly. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how your agency can prime the pump to turn around funding fast. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Right back. Welcome back. The Treasury Department's distributed $150 billion to counties and cities in 30 days as part of the Coronavirus Relief Fund. The National Academy of Public Administration has recommendations for agencies that are implementing programs with quick turnaround times effectively. 
Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, thanks for coming on. I look at your latest work and I want to ask you to start. How much of the issue is how much money an agency has to move? How much of the problem is how many jurisdictions or different places does the money have to go? And how much of the challenge is how fast that money has to get out the door? You know, Francis, I think the answer is yes to all of them, right? <laughs> You know, the ARP um, is pushing a lot of money out the door. So the, the pipeline or the size of the pipe is, is important, but there are new provisions to existing programs. So those have to be changed and coded. There are new recipients um, that, that didn't exist before. So those have to be changed and coded. And there is an incredible urgency about getting this money out. So it's all of those, it's, re it's really challenging, but I do think that the federal workforce is so committed to this and, and feels so much value in being able to share this assistance and get it out to the right people that they're dedicated to making it work. One of the issues that people talk start to talk about whenever there's a big amount of money that goes out the door is improper payments. Every administration since I've been paying attention to this stuff has focused on improper payments. How has that evolved over time and what did you and your team look at when it comes to people not getting the money that aren't supposed to get money? Well, I, I think one of the, the important innovations here is the creation of the PRAC um, and giving it oversight. And they've really done a lot to um, collaborate with the federal agencies and with the recipients. One of the recommendations that we do make in the report is about establishing program offices in the agencies that are having to oversee this massive distribution of funds. And a key feature of that is working with the PRAC, but also working with the recipients to make sure that you design these programs in a way that they're going to be able to execute them effectively and that you get guidance out up front that's clear and executable and flexible. So if you coordinate with the oversight bodies from the, from the beginning and you design that oversight and that flexibility into the programs, it's gonna make a huge difference in how the counties, especially at the receiving end of it, are going to be able to execute for results. That's one of the seven key areas that this uh, report focuses on where policy changes can make a big difference in getting these this money out the door effectively. Another one that uh, your team writes about, federal relief legislation should require formal evaluation of program impact during and at the end of the program. At the end of the program makes sense. How does one evaluate the effectiveness of a program like this in the middle of it, Terry? Well, and again, this is a place where that program office can be very collaborative. Um, and here we suggest that they coordinate with GAO from the beginning so that you're looking, effect looking at the impact of programs as they move along. You know what those evaluation criteria are going to be and you're designing for effectiveness. And equally important in that is finding the, the glitches, so to speak, in the execution so that you can design the next relief program or you can change the guidance as you move along so that the um, executing organizations can be more effective and at the same time compliant. I think one of the things we saw that's really interesting here is the longer that it takes you to, the longer that it takes the federal agencies to get their guidance out, the more risk averse the executing agencies are going to be, right? Because they don't want to be on the wrong side of a compliance checklist. So getting that guidance out quickly enables them to be in compliance. And then in partnership with the program office and the GAO and the PRAC, 
you can make sure that the guardrails are tight so that you avoid the waste, fraud, and abuse. One more of these I want to ask you about, and I commend all, all seven of these recommendations to folks who care about this stuff, and we have it posted at govmatters.tv resources. Improved intergovernmental collaboration and coordination needed. That's one that's probably been included in every NAPA report in the history of NAPA reports. What do you see here that potentially can work so that the next time we have to talk about this, we at least can say we've seen some improvement. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think you're, you're exactly right, Francis. And we can't over, as, uh, over articulate how important um, that this money is for driving real institutional change and making real progress. But we do think that it's really important to have an integrating body at the federal level that can coordinate horizontally across all of the different federal programs that are delivering these kinds of, of uh, funds and then vertically across all the levels of government. We've called it in other channels, a national investment board. And it's that organization that would sit at the center, um, make sure that all of the agencies, perhaps at the undersecretary level or the deputy secretary level, are making um, the rules as flexible as we can so that the organizations that have to deliver these funds can really think about um, the, the, the ultimate recipient, the citizen. And but, make sure that we're doing the best and making these programs work the best for them. So that integration at the central point is really, really important. We have about 20 seconds left, Terry. Where should that National Investment Board live or does it matter? Um, you know, it probably needs to be overseen out of the White House. Um, it can be part of the Domestic Policy Council. Uh, but it needs to have White House uh, endorsement and oversight, very similar to the way that the uh, American Recovery Act was run uh, about a decade ago. Terry Girton, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to the NAPA report at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You text GOVMATTERS to 58671 back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.